Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Hi, Mandy. I'm okay. How are you? Good. I was hoping you'd say you were okay. I mean, better than last week anyway. Not yet. I'm getting there uh, very soon. I'll By the time this comes out, I'll be doing amazing. It'll be February. I just need January to be over with. January has just been a month, a year. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Well, something. I guess a lot of people think that. I've been seeing a lot of different memes and stuff going around on social media with like people, you know, basically the idea is that January has lasted forever and has been terrible for everyone. So yeah, you're not I'm alone. I'm in good company. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> just a reminder, we have our live show coming up in Chicago on March 27th at the Chicago City Winery, and we'll have all the information in our show notes. Mandy started pulling sources for the uh, episode that we're doing. It's a cuckoo banana story, just the most moms and murder story you will ever hear in your entire life. So if you're in the area, please come see us. We would love to see you. Tickets are still on sale. Check that out again in the show notes. Very exciting announcement there, but we'd love to see you. Yeah. And it's coming up. I mean, I feel like it's oh, not gosh. like that soon, but I feel like it is coming up kind of fast. I don't know. I mean, it'll be here before we know it. We'll be saying, we have plenty of time. We have plenty of time. And then we'll be on an airplane, like just full blown panic attack. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. We'll do our best. For sure. It'll be great. Absolutely. So we'll get right into this week's episode. This episode was actually suggested to us in our Facebook group several weeks back, maybe even months ago now. I really don't remember. I think I accidentally missed it. Somebody had posted it on the, there's a post in our Facebook group where people can leave suggestions. And I just never saw this one until I was looking through it again recently and I stumbled on it and it caught my attention, mostly because I couldn't believe that I had never even heard about this before. This week's story involves a celebrity, which is Woody Harrelson. And when you think of Woody, you probably think of his roles in hit movies and TV shows, including Cheers, which is where he got his big break, a movie Natural Born Killers, The Hunger Games, and even Zombieland. But what you probably don't think about Woody Harrelson, and maybe you're hearing this for the first time right now, is that Woody has a very close connection with a man that is responsible for as many as two dozen killings. And that man is Woody's own father, Charles Harrelson, who lived a wild, high-stakes life after becoming involved with the Sicilian mob in the 1960s. So today's episode is about the contract killings of Charles Harrelson, the hit that finally sent him to prison, and some really interesting allegations about being an accomplice in the assassination of John F. Kennedy. So there are multiple locations in this story, and most of them are in Texas, but the murder that Charles Harrelson is the most notorious for happened in San Antonio. So before we get into the story this week, we're going to tell you a little about San Antonio in this week's segment of We Googled This City. And I don't remember if we talked about San Antonio before. Doesn't it seem like it's familiar? But I don't think these facts. Have we've been in Texas a lot, it. so it wouldn't surprise me if we've done San Antonio once before. Okay, so there's a chance some of these are repeats, but I really don't think they are. I felt like I went at least on page two of Google for some of these facts. So San Antonio is located in Texas, as we said, and has a population of around 1.5 million residents, making it the seventh most populated city in the U.S. San Antonio is also the most visited city in Texas and 17th most visited city in the country. I assumed Austin would be higher on the list, wouldn't you? Yeah, I know people go to San Antonio, but I really did think Austin would have been number one there. So the Alamo in Texas is located in San Antonio, and it brings in more than 2.5 million visitors a year, making it the most visited place in all of Texas. 
And right across the street from the Alamo, the very first church's chicken, oh, that's a rough one to say, the very first church's chicken opened its doors in 1952. Marriage Island is a heart-shaped island that's located on the San Antonio River, and it's estimated to be the spot of 225 weddings every year. So keeping with this love theme, Amazon.com named San Antonio the most romantic city in all of the U.S. in 2014, based on their sales of steamy romance novels, love-focused music, and even relationship advice books. And Mandy, since Valentine's Day is right around the corner, I've made a top five list to share with you all. It's a top five terrible pickup lines <laughs> and the crimes that will likely be committed by the people who say it. So I took it and <laughs> took it to a dumb <laughs> level and then just kept going. So Mandy, number five, here is the number five pickup line. I was wondering if you had an extra heart because mine was just stolen. And clearly this guy is going to sell your organs on the black market. Don't trust this one. <laughs> so number four, there must be something wrong with my phone because it doesn't have your number in it. And this guy is apparently an idiot and he's going to likely kill you in a number of ways by accident. And then he won't even be able to call 911 because he doesn't even understand how phones work. So <laughs> not my best work. Number three, you owe me a drink. Because when I looked at you, I dropped mine. That's so terrible. Isn't that the dumbest thing you've ever heard? I yes. like rolled my eyes even <laughs> writing that. Littering and stabbing. That's what he's going to do. He's <laughs> throwing glass on the ground and then he's just picking it up to do something terrible. Big, big no on this guy. Number two, I've lost that loving feeling. Will you help me find it again? <laughs> this guy is going to kill you at karaoke. Stay away from all microphones with wires on it. <laughs> Only wireless microphones. This guy is bad, bad news. Plus, he's terrible with puns. Last one, number one. This one's really rough. Go ahead. Hold on. Let me see if I can do it. Go ahead. Feel my shirt. It's made of boyfriend material. <laughs> this guy is Buffalo Bill. That's all there is. Stay away from this one. <laughs> The very most. And that is all I have for this week, Mandy. Let's get into the episode, please. <laughs> Charles Harrelson was born in Lovelady, Texas in July of 1938. There wasn't really a lot of information to be found about his early years, but when he was a young adult, he served in the U.S. Navy and eventually made his way to California, where he became an encyclopedia salesman. At some point around this time, he married and divorced wife number one. There would actually end up being either four or five wives in total, depending on what source you read. But again, it was really hard to find accurate dates on some of these types of details because this was 70 years ago and before everything was digitized. So it was kind of hard to dig up a lot of information, yeah. especially dates and stuff about like when he was married and divorced to like all of his different wives and stuff. By the late 50s, Charles had taken up gambling as a means of income, and he was considered to actually be a professional gambler that really knew his way around a deck of cards. In 1959, Charles married his second wife, Diane Lou Oswald, and the two of them had three children together, Brett, Jordan, and Woody Harrelson. Woody and his siblings didn't exactly have an ideal childhood. Their dad, Charles, was gone frequently, and by this time, he had also begun kind of his foray into a life of crime. In 1960, he was arrested for robbery and sent to prison, but he was released early for good behavior. But even once he was out, he continued to be drawn to this riskier side of life. 
So Woody in particular really struggled as a child with anger issues, and he was even kicked out of preschool as well as the first grade. By 1964, Charles's marriage to Diane had deteriorated to the point of divorce, and Charles left the family behind, and Woody was seven years old at this time. His mom really tried to protect him and his siblings from the truth about their dad and never spoke ill of Charles around them, and she eventually moved the children to Ohio and left Charles behind in Texas to do, you know, his thing. Charles bounced around different jobs, but by the late 60s, he was a full-time gambler, spending all of his time and all of his money trying to make money. You know, that's how gambling works, but often it's not how gambling works. Right. So it was in this setting, this world of gambling and these big debts, that Charles found himself sucked into a life of organized crime as a means of funding this gambling habit. He eventually took a very risky loan from the Sicilian mob, which was ultimately how he ended up working as a contract killer for them so that he could repay this debt that he had borrowed from them to pay off his gambling debts. Charles did several other jobs for the mob, including drug smuggling and collecting gambling debts that were owed to them, you know, by other people as well. Some of Charles's first paid hits happened in 1968. By this time, he had met a new love interest named Sandra, who he allegedly manipulated and coerced into helping him pull off one of his first hits. According to Sandra, the relationship only lasted a little over a year, and the entire relationship was pretty tumultuous. She was in her early 20s and had recently left her young child with her mom to move to Houston. She had been married and divorced twice at this point and didn't really have any professional skills to speak of. Charles quickly charmed her and convinced her to take off to Vegas with him. She got a taste of what Charles was really like on that very first trip, where he proceeded to gamble away the $5,000 that they had brought with him. That'd be terrifying. You're in a new place with a new person, and there's $5,000, which is a lot of money now, but oh my gosh, a lot of money then. And you're watching him literally get rid of all of it. You know, just spend it like like it grows on trees, I guess. You know, right. that, that's just, that's scary right off the bat. So from that point on, though, Sandra was along for the ride with Harrelson. They bounced around from city to city, leaving each one because Charles found himself in some sort of trouble. As time went on, Sandra learned more and more about the shady business that Charles was involved in. She learned that he worked to collect large gambling debts. At some point, she actually asked him whether or not he hurt people in the course of doing this work, and he said, of course. Sandra also began to see his darker side within the relationship as well. Charles was very controlling and physically violent towards Sandra. He wouldn't allow her to make friends or to really even go anywhere without him by her side. After several failed attempts to end the relationship, Sandra found herself entangled in his dangerous line of work. Charles told Sandra that he had been tasked with the job of collecting debt from a man named Alan Blurg. In return for getting the money, he would be rewarded with $2,000. One Tuesday afternoon, Charles came home and forced Sandra to participate by making her call Alan on the phone and lure him to a bar called the Brass Jug Club. She was instructed to make Alan believe that she wanted to perform sexual favors for him so that he would be enticed to show up. That night, Alan met some friends at the club and at around 8.30 p.m., he announced that he was going to meet up with a woman and said that he would return shortly, but he never came back. And we're going to talk about exactly what happened to Alan after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. (music) 
At the beginning of the year, I set a goal to work out at least three times a week. Sounds ambitious, right? And it is, especially for someone who works out zero times a week. But you know what? OpenFit is helping me stick with working out because I can do it right from the comfort of my own home. I've done the fancy gym memberships, but they always end up collecting dust and I end up paying for something I'm not even going to. Even with the free childcare, my kids aren't interested in going and with cold and flu season underway, I would rather set myself on fire than bring home one more plague from someone not wiping down the equipment before I use it. OpenFit takes all of the complexity out of losing weight and getting fit. It's a brand new, super simple streaming service that allows you to work out from the comfort of your living room in as little as 10 minutes a day. What I love about OpenFit is that you can access it anywhere and anytime. You can join a live real-time workout with a certified professional trainer who will help you get the most out of your home workout, or you can opt for a pre-recorded workout. My favorite class is Kickboxing Express. It's a fast-paced interval class that will have you punching, kicking, and sweating for just 15 minutes. OpenFit just works for me. Even if I only have an extra five minutes, there's a class for me. And let me tell you, it's really addictive. After each class, you can see your statistics and see how you're improving. OpenFit has changed the way I work out. And with our code MOMS, you can join me on a fitness journey personalized just for you. Right now, our listeners get a 14-day free trial membership to OpenFit when you text MOMS to 505050. Try it for free or your money back. It's entirely risk-free. So what do you have to lose besides the weight? You will get full access to OpenFit all the workouts, and a nutrition guide, totally free for 14 days. Again, just text MOMS to 505050. Standard message and data rates may apply. We all want to step out in a stylish shoe, but what if your new favorite shoe could not only be stylish, but could also be sustainable, comfortable, and washable? It sounds too good to be true, right? But that's exactly what makes Rothy's your new favorite pair of shoes. I am a chronic online shopper, but with that comes some risk. What happens if you don't like something or it doesn't fit? You don't have to worry about that with Rothy's because Rothy's comes with free shipping, free returns, and exchanges, so there is no risk, no worries, and no reason not to try. Plus, Rothy's is constantly adding more shoes to their inventory. They have tons of playful designs, styles, and add fun pops of colors to perk up every outfit while you still look professional and polished. I chose a pair of steel gray slip-on sneakers because I knew they would go with literally everything, including skirts and dresses. And thank goodness they are machine washable because I wear them basically every day and have since the very first day I bought them. Anytime they need a refresh, I throw them in the washer and they come out looking and feeling brand new. And it will blow your mind that Rothy's are actually made from repurposed plastic water bottles. In fact, Rothy's has diverted over 35 million water bottles from landfills already. Check out all the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com moms. Go to R-O-T-H-Y-S dot moms to get your new favorite flats. Comfort, style, and sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. Head to rothys.com slash moms today. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were talking about how Charles Harrelson, with the help of his girlfriend Sandra, had lured Allen Berg to a nightclub so that Charles could intercept him and collect a large debt that Allen allegedly owed. Alan was a 31-year-old family man with a pregnant wife and two young children. He and his father, Nathan, co-owned a carpeting company called Imperial Carpets, and Alan was really reaping the benefits of owning a successful business. He was making $500 a week, and that is equal to about $3,750 in 2020. So he and his family were pretty well off. Much like Charles, Alan had a bit of a gambling problem and was involved in the seedier underbelly of society. 
I read reports that Allen and his father sometimes used shady business tactics that really worked in their own favor financially, and they basically had no problem trampling on everybody else if necessary. One person that had a particular problem with Allen was a man named Frank DiMaria. Frank was a fellow mobster who happened to own a competitive business to the Berg's carpet business, and there was allegedly some bad blood between these two companies after Frank says that Alan and his father ripped them off on a carpet deal. As it would turn out, Frank actually hired Charles Harrelson to murder Alan Berg, not to collect on a debt, as Charles had told Sandra. When Alan went out to the parking lot that evening to meet this mystery woman from the phone call, Charles abducted him at gunpoint, and Sandra was also in the car while this was taking place. Once Alan was in the backseat of the car, Charles drove him out to a secluded spot and ushered him out of the vehicle. Moments later, he shot Alan in the head. Sandra was absolutely horrified as she really had no idea that Charles was going to murder this man, but Charles told her that she really needed to, you know, keep it together or she would suffer the same fate. Alan's body was placed in the trunk of the car and eventually dumped at a beach near Freeport where it would remain for five months before being discovered. Both Charles and Frank DiMaria were indicted on murder charges, but during the trial, the defense claimed that Alan was kind of a shady character who had made a lot of people mad in the past, and they argued that there were as many as 11 different men who had a motive to kill Alan and that there just wasn't sufficient evidence to convict Harrelson. In the end, he was acquitted of that murder in September of 1970, but his days of contract killing were far from being over. A very short while later, Charles was back in the courtroom on another murder charge after evidence came out that he was involved in the death of another man named Sam DeGilia. Sam's murder took place very close to the same time that Alan Berg was actually killed. Sam was a local grain dealer and father of four children. He was in business with his lifelong best friend, Pete Scamardo. But Pete wasn't just involved in the grain business. He had a second job trafficking heroin across the Mexican border. And it just so happened that Charles Harrelson was working with him to distribute the drugs once they were here on U.S. soil. At this time, Sandra was still in the picture, and she later told investigators that she first met Pete under the impression that he was an old friend of Charles's. Around the same time Alan was killed, Pete showed up with a shipment of heroin that he had smuggled across the border, and he wanted Charles to sell it. Charles said he wouldn't be able to sell the heroin in Houston, but that he had the name of a contact in Kansas City, so they set off on a road trip. However, Harrelson actually lost the entire shipment of heroin in transport after a traffic stop. He was arrested and the drugs were seized. As you may have heard or seen in the movies, drug smugglers don't really like it when you lose their drugs. So as payment for losing the heroin, Pete persuaded Harrelson to murder his business partner, Sam. His motive for wanting Sam dead was money. He wanted to collect on insurance from their business partnership. There was $100,000 in life insurance up for grabs, and he intended to use half of it to pay off their business loan, and then he would keep the other $50,000 for himself, which would be around $369,000 today. Harrelson would receive $2,000 for this murder, which would be around $14,700 today. So both Scamardo and Harrelson ended up being indicted in this murder, and eventually, Scamardo confessed to hiring Harrelson to kill his business partner. At the time of the indictment, Harrelson was still behind bars after being arrested in the Allen Berg murder. 
So both Scamardo and Harrelson actually hired the same attorney who was Percy Foreman, and he's actually considered one of the greatest attorneys in U.S. history. He only lost 50 out of more than 15,000 murder cases, and this is the same lawyer who represented James Earl Ray, who is the killer of Martin Luther King Jr., and he also represented numerous organized crime kingpins in his career. In Harrelson's trial, Percy Foreman put a witness on the stand that claimed that she was with Charles at the time of the murder. And because of her testimony, this trial ended in a hung jury and they were really just deadlocked with an 11 to 1 vote for conviction. Then in 1972, Charles was retried for the murder. The witness from the first trial had since fled to Aruba and was not there to participate in the second trial. And so without her testimony, Charles was found guilty by the second jury. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison, but only spent five years behind bars after being released again for good behavior. And some say that he was released this time after providing information about another mob member. But this is so crazy to me that like he had just been acquitted of a murder and now he's back before a judge about another murder and he's convicted and the judge is like, okay, we'll give you 15 years. Like that seems like such a light sentence to me. No, I totally agree. But isn't it, I would assume it's probably one of those things where you can't bring anything from the other trial into this one, right? So like that happens in some cases where uh, somebody's being tried for the murder of their wife now, but then also they're like going to have charges against them from the murder of another wife 20 years ago. And you can't bring one into the other trial. So if they can't bring that into the trial, then, but I mean, 15 years is still nothing, (laughs) you know, in comparison, even without knowing any of that, that's, that's just nothing. Yeah. It's really, it might, it's mind blowing to me. So when he got out of prison after spending just five years there, it was the end of the 1970s and Charles was still really young. He was just entering his forties. So he had plenty of life and crime left in him at this time. When Charles Harrelson was paroled in 1978, he was married to his third wife, Joanne, who he manipulated into committing crimes with him, much like he had done with his previous partners. You might think that a man who just got out of prison would want to lay low following their release, but Charles quickly picked up where he left off with his risky life. In 1979, he took on a new contracted murder, and it was a big one. This killing would take Charles from being a small-time hitman to being a big-time assassin, and the hit was worth $250,000, which would be around $1.7 million today. The man with the high dollar price tag was a federal U.S. district judge named John H. Wood Jr. Judge Wood was appointed as a federal judge by President Nixon, and he took office in 1971. At the time of our story, he was presiding over drug cases in the West Texas area. Judge Wood was notorious for his hard stance on drugs, and he dedicated his career to the cause of eradicating the country's drug problem. He had been raised in a very strict and moral family and believed that a man's word was his honor and that above all else, people should always follow the law. His solution to the drug problem was to hand out the harshest possible sentences for drug-related crimes, up to and including life sentences in many cases. He commonly handed down large bond amounts for marijuana, averaging $200,000 for these offenses in his courtroom. Less than 100 miles away in Austin, bond amounts for the same infraction were around $15,000. His reputation for doling out these harsh punishments earned him the nickname Maximum John. As you might imagine, Judge Wood was not very well liked among the local criminals that were involved in the drug smuggling scene. Jimmy Chagra was one drug kingpin who really disliked this judge. 
Jimmy was a big-time marijuana and narcotics trafficker and a professional gambler. He was the kind of guy who would walk into any Vegas casino and bet as much as half a million dollars on one roll of the dice, and he took private jets wherever he needed to go. To this day, he is considered one of the biggest drug smugglers in the U.S. Jimmy had two brothers, Lee and Joseph, both of whom were lawyers who represented drug smugglers, which came in handy for Jimmy when any trouble would pop up. In 1978, a prosecutor that had been pursuing Jimmy was shot at while driving his car, but survived the attack. In February of 1979, the government finally caught up to Jimmy and indicted him on drug trafficking charges. The feds believed he had a major role in what was a very powerful drug ring, and they wanted him off the streets. Jimmy's brother, Joseph, was representing him in the case, and he had allegedly been passed on some information that Jimmy's case had been assigned to Judge Maximum John Wood and that the judge intended to give Jimmy a life sentence without the possibility of parole. And we are going to get into what exactly happened after this, after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Almost 85% of all gifts on Valentine's Day are bought by women, which means most of us ladies are treating ourselves for the holiday. So why not get something you actually want and check out Noemi? Noemi is the only fine jewelry company offering such incredible quality at such a low price. While I love nice jewelry, I am terrified to buy something like jewelry online because what if I don't like it or it doesn't fit? With Noemi, that's not a problem at all since you can return any order for a full refund, even engravings and custom designs. It's literally an entirely risk-free experience. Plus, their jewelry is gorgeous. A few years ago, I had to stop wearing my wedding ring since the nickel in the ring started giving me a rash. So I started wearing this rubber ring, which I really liked, but it seemed to dress down whatever I was wearing. So I decided to try the beautiful petite diamond band ring in white gold from Noemi. I love it because it's super beautiful and it looks great whether I'm wearing my uniform of sweats or dressing it up with sweats and a denim jacket. Plus, the website is easy to use and shipping is crazy fast. I ordered my ring on a Monday and got it on a Wednesday. And Noemi jewelry is priced so non-Kardashians can afford it. Usually, you have to know a guy to get this kind of deal, but at Noemi, everyone gets the friends and family treatment. If you're looking for quality, fine jewelry made to last a lifetime from a luxury brand you can trust, it's Noemi. They have thousands of five-star reviews online, and we suggest you read some and see why people are raving about this company. Go to hellonoemi.com slash moms to see their collections and get $50 off your first purchase with promo code moms. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-O-E-M-I-E dot com slash moms. And don't forget to use promo code moms for $50 off your first purchase. We don't all have the same hair, so why should we all use the same shampoo and conditioner? My hair is thinner than my patients when I'm being asked yet again, what's for dinner? So I need a shampoo and conditioner to match. And that's why I love Function of Beauty. After taking the short four-question quiz on their website, Function of Beauty created my personalized formula. Within the quiz, I was able to select my five main hair goals. And in my case, I chose strengthen, lengthen, thermal protection, anti-frizz, and hydrate. My special formula is exactly what I need and somehow still the best smelling shampoo and conditioner I've ever used. I chose their pear scent, but there are other fragrances that I can't wait to try. And if fragrance isn't for you, they also offer their products fragrance and dye-free. Whether your hair is curly or straight, natural or processed, Function of Beauty individually formulates every bottle based on your unique hair type, style preferences, and hair goals. To get started right now, go to functionofbeauty.com moms to take your four-part hair profile quiz and save 20% on your first order. Don't spend another minute in hair misery. 
Go to functionofbeauty.com slash moms to let them know that we sent you. That's functionofbeauty.com slash moms. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were talking about how a major drug kingpin named Jimmy Chagra had been arrested and was set to go before Judge John H. Wood, a federal judge that was notorious for handing down harsh sentences to drug criminals. After attempting and failing to bribe the judge with $10 million, Jimmy decided that the next best thing was to have the judge killed, and the hitman chosen for this job was none other than Charles Harrelson. On the morning of May 29, 1979, Judge Wood was getting into his car outside of his home when he was shot in the back with a rifle, killing him instantly. His assassination was the first time a federal judge had ever been murdered, and the FBI stepped in really quickly to investigate. It was almost immediately known that the shooting was directly related to Judge Wood's criminal cases. However, Jimmy Chagra was not a suspect in this murder right away. In fact, they didn't really have a suspect, and Charles was long gone by this time. Jimmy still went on trial for his drug charges in August of 1979, of course, with a different judge presiding over his case, and he was still found guilty and sentenced to 30 years in prison. In the aftermath of the killing, there was widespread fear and chaos among the justice system, and there was heavy pressure on the FBI to solve this assassination. Despite there being a $200,000 reward for information, the months ticked by with no leads and they never did find a murder weapon. While behind bars, Jimmy's brother Joe, who, as we mentioned before, was also his lawyer, visited him at the United States Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas. The FBI had secretly placed microphones under the table that the two brothers sat at and they finally had a break in the Judge Wood killing. The brothers were overheard talking on this microphone and they were discussing the assassination and also implicating Charles Harrelson in the shooting. Isn't that kind of shocking? Like, I know that they didn't know they were being recorded, but doesn't that seem kind of unreal? Not unreal, but it does seem kind of shocking to me that the attorney at the prison would be talking to him about that, doesn't it? Or am I crazy? Or I'm just thinking of law and order. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, later on, his brother tried to tell say to the police that like that was a violation of their attorney-client privilege, but the police ended up winning. They were able to like use this evidence because the police said no in that moment when you were visiting him in him in jail and you were talking to him, they determined that he was there as a brother and not acting as a lawyer at that moment. So oh, they you know, so they were able to get around it. But yeah, he did the brother did try to fight it by saying you can't record like secretly record conversations right. between me and my client, but they were saying, no, 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 you were here visiting him as his brother. And so mm, that makes they sense. were able to use, yeah, they were able to use it as evidence. So the search for Charles began and investigators sought after him for months before they finally caught up with him in 1981. They actually arrested him on drug charges in Houston, but he was able to make bail and then he took off and left the state. And it took them another seven months to find him. And he was later taken into custody while he was driving on I-10. And at the time of his arrest, he was high on cocaine and acting completely belligerent. When Harrelson was brought to jail, he was placed in a cell near another convict named Johnny Ray Spinelli, who was in for multiple counts of robbery and rape. But at this point, he was actually on the straight and narrow and was trying to really turn his life around. Johnny Ray and Charles became jail buddies and would play chess together through their cell bars. 
Johnny Ray said that he would often hear Charles talking to himself as if he were rehearsing a speech, and on many occasions he was heard rambling about killing a judge. So Johnny Ray contacted the FBI. He actually wrote them a letter and said that he wasn't trying to be rewarded for the tip in any way, but he thought it was the right thing to do to help take Charles down for the murder. At this time, the FBI already suspected that Charles was guilty of murdering Judge Wood, but they didn't have any tangible evidence to prove it. So they asked Johnny Ray if he would be willing to record his conversations with Charles. Three years after Judge Wood was killed, the secret tapes came to light and the federal prosecutors had enough evidence to indict Charles in the assassination. Johnny Ray Spinelli testified against Harrelson in the trial, and for his safety, he was then relocated out of the Texas prison system for fear of retaliation because he was known as a snitch. Terrifying that this guy did this. I mean, amazing that he did it, but I wouldn't yeah. mess with the mob. Oh, my gosh. No, absolutely not. Yeah, I would be way too scared. So over the next six years, he ended up being held at 33 different prisons over 12 different states. As for Charles, he was found guilty and sentenced to two life terms in prison. After spending nearly 15 years behind bars, Charles had one last stunt up his sleeve, or at least he tried to. While incarcerated at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, Charles and two other inmates attempted to escape the prison with a rope that they had made. However, the men were scared after prison officers fired warning shots at them during their escaped attempt, and they all surrendered. Charles was transferred to a Supermax facility in Colorado, where he was housed until his death in 2007. He was found dead in his cell at age 68, following a heart attack. So at the beginning of the episode, I hinted around that there was a little bit of conspiracy involved in this case, and it's a rabbit hole that I thought was really interesting to go down myself. So when Charles was arrested and he was found high on cocaine, he made some bizarre statements to the police. And so for one thing, he readily admitted to murdering Judge Wood. But at the same time, he also made claims that he was involved in the assassination of JFK. So if you don't know that much about the JFK assassination, um, you're not going to learn it here. We're not really going to get into too much about that on this episode. But the very basics are that President Kennedy was shot once in the back and once in the head while he was riding in a presidential motorcade in Dallas in 1963. And he was there on a political trip. So a man named Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested for shooting a police officer later that same day, about an hour after JFK was assassinated. And this officer was questioning Lee Harvey Oswald on the street, and he pulled out a gun and shot him. So they eventually charged him also with the JFK shooting. But Lee Harvey Oswald was shot and killed by a man named Jack Ruby before he could ever be prosecuted. So what does any of this have to do with Charles Harrelson? Well, it is speculated that Charles was connected to Jack Ruby through a mutual contact that was known to both of them. And many people who have researched the JFK assassination believe that Charles Harrelson is one of the three mystery men that is seen in photographs following the assassination of JFK and that his allegation about being involved in it are true. Others aren't so sure. The FBI themselves have officially discounted any involvement by Harrelson in the Kennedy assassination. That's a quote from the FBI. And Charles himself even recanted his statements. But those who study the conspiracy still believe that the Kennedy assassination was the result of an organized hit and that Harrelson was likely involved in one way or another. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I don't really have an opinion on whether I think he was involved or not, but yeah, that's I mean, crazy. It's possible. I did look at some, like, the photographs that, like, they're talking about, and it could be him. You know, I mean, it could also be anyone at that time. You know, they're black and white photos, old photos, but, I mean, maybe. 
Yeah, I've never gone into a rabbit hole on the JFK assassination. I'm one of those terrible people that are like, oh, you said that this person did it? Okay, I totally believe the government on this one. I have no reason not to. Meanwhile, other people are like, here's all the evidence. I'm like, okay, well, that yeah. sounds great. <laughs> Some people really take it to an extreme, but yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. Yeah, all that's I can interesting say on though. That is maybe yeah, yeah. is my yeah. opinion. <laughs> no, it is interesting though, like the out of nowhere, his name is kind of in the middle of this. I mean, it makes sense that his name could be in the middle of this since he was did become this huge hitman, you know, kind of out of nowhere. He grew into this huge hitman that people called. So it's not the craziest thing I've ever heard. It's not the craziest conspiracy theory I've ever heard. Yeah, it's really not. So as for Woody Harrelson, he managed to find success in life despite his father's wrongdoings. He speaks often about his great relationship with his mom and his two brothers, and he seemed to have a mostly regular childhood. He's given limited interviews about his father, but he said that he had no idea his dad was involved in crime until he heard it on the radio one day when he was riding home from school when he was 11 or 12 years old. A family friend actually picked him up and drove him home that day, and he heard the name Charles V. Harrelson, and they were talking about his murder trial. When Woody got home, he asked his mom if that was his dad that they were talking about, and she said that it was. He says his mom never tried to turn the kids against their father, and when Woody was 20 years old in 1981, he tried to get in touch with him for the very first time. He wanted to help his dad however he could, and he eventually spent a couple million dollars on lawyers to try and get a new trial for Charles. Despite his father being behind bars, Woody said that they had a pretty good relationship and got along well. Woody had his big break into acting in the early 80s when he was cast on the wildly successful show Cheers, and the rest is history for his acting career. Woody eventually married his wife, Laura, who was his assistant for a couple of years before he told her he was in love with her, and the two finally married in 2008. The couple now has three daughters, and the family lives in Maui. He loves being a family man and has been with his wife for 30 years now. Super interesting. I would have never, ever, ever, ever thought this about Woody Harrelson. I don't have like a deep knowledge of Woody Harrelson. I know stuff he's been in and cheers, of course, but this is super crazy. And he didn't really even know. He had no idea until he was 12 years old. That's a stunning way to find out your dad was in the mob and on trial for murder. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I kind of felt a little silly when I realized that like I've never heard this before. And then I ended up asking a few people if they even knew about it. I asked my husband and I um, texted a couple of my friends and I was like, hey, did you know that Woody Harrelson's father was a hitman? And everybody said no. So I was like, oh, well, I guess this is not common knowledge. And then I decided it would make a great episode for the podcast because maybe a lot of people did not know about this or yeah. that this was a thing. I'm sure there's a lot of people who did know, you know, people who are more. I feel I like guess, it's on one of those in. quizzes, you know, whenever it's like things you don't know about, top 20 things you don't know about celebrities, and like one person has a six toe, and then Woody Harrelson's dad was a hitman. Like those are the order and then those kind of things go right. in. So I feel like I kind of, it feels familiar to me, but I had no idea any of this. Like um, it's somebody else has a dad in a mom that were murdered or something and I heard about it the other day a celebrity I think might be somebody from like modern family and I was like never heard of that at all like both their parents were married or not married murdered and it's just like not something that really comes up I mean why would it really it you know doesn't yeah mean anything as far as they're concerned but this is super interesting but just the way he found out and I thought that was interesting that his mom kind of I mean, she could have spoken really poorly about him and said he was all these terrible things, but kind of let them make their own decision, which says a lot about her, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
Okay, Melissa, are we ready to turn the page and move on to last thing before we go? I think we have our hero segment this week because it is the first of the month. And I always love our hero segments. I always love hearing feel-good stories about people doing amazing things to each other and in their communities. So I'm excited to hear who our hero is this week. I loved that setup. That was very good. (laughs) And this is sent to us by our friend, Christine. We're going to see Christine in Chicago, and I'm so excited. She's been our friend forever. And she sent this uh, story in about her friend. This is about her best friend. And she said, she's one of the most amazing people I've ever known. She's a mom of four, full-time teacher this year of fifth grade. And previously, she taught fourth. And For just shy of three years, she's also juggled managing the care, insurance, treatment, expenses, equipment, and all-around bureaucracy of the terminal illness of her ex-husband. It was one of the situations where they were great friends, just not to be together as a couple, and he doesn't have a lot of family, I guess, and she didn't want their three children to be tasked with all that comes with assisting an ill family member. So she's taken it all upon herself and handled a truly horrific situation with more grace than most spouses would while they were still married. And she's done all of this with a toddler. Now, as the most difficult days near, she continues to prove her strength despite how broken she may feel. Her divorce could teach a good number of people what marriage vows truly mean and how it's possible to come together when it counts the most. One day I hope to be like her, but she set an incredibly high bar. Thanks for reading and happy new year to both you and your families. She sent this a couple weeks ago, but this is the first time we get to use it. I don't have her friend's name and I'm sorry I I didn't grab that from her, but I love that. That's amazing. That is so much to take on when you don't have to, just to take it on for him and to take it on for your kids. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really amazing. And I feel like it really does speak to her character and the kind of person that she is. And it is really a wonderful thing. And yeah, there's not probably a lot of people who would put themselves in that position for their ex-husband, but it makes a lot of sense. You know, whenever you have children and you have, you know, you've raised these kids together and this is their dad and I can totally understand why she wants to be there for, you know, for this part of things. And yeah, it's amazing. So definitely a hero. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sending that. If you have any heroes in your life, heroes come in all different ways. What am I trying to say? They don't have to have a cape is basically what I'm saying. We've had um, all different ones and it's amazing. We love it and we love sharing it. Send it to lastthingbeforewego at gmail.com. And we have some more in there and we're still kind of working our way through them. So We haven't forgotten you if you have sent one. And also we want to remind you guys that if you're looking for bonus episodes or uh, extra like cards, stickers, uh, mugs, stuff like that, we have our patreon.com slash moms and murder podcast where we do a bonus episode every month. And we also have all of our episodes uploaded on Sunday nights, ad free. You get it first. And uh, this month we did the disappearance of Adam Emery which is a crazy story out of, where was it out of? New Hampshire? Rhode Island. Rhode Island. Dang it. My next guest was Connecticut. I knew the general area and we <laughs> literally just did this. But yeah, it's a crazy, crazy story and uh, we just published that. So if you're interested in bonus content, that's where it's at, patreon.com slash podcast. Mandy, I think we're good. I think we are good. All right, guys, we will see you next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime.
Thanks so much.